From Thriller Digital, welcome to Secrets, Lies, and Alibis. I'm your host, James Lee. Due to the graphic nature of the details of this case, listener discretion is advised. Episode 2, Fear Run. Clemente has an admission to make. His English isn't great, so he has to get a Spanish-speaking officer alone. He asks to speak to Deputy Taranzo privately and tells a story that will change the entire course of the case. He admits that he had gone to Cheryl and Carol's house at about 6 or 6.30 that morning. He went through the front door, which he says was never locked. Mark also states this in his interview. And saw Cheryl lying on the floor. He tells Deputy Taranzo he had been drinking throughout the night and ran out of beer. Because the store would not open for another hour, he claims he went next door to Cheryl and Carol's house to see if the women had any beer. He describes the scene, saying there was blood everywhere. He also says that he had lifted Cheryl up onto his knee to see if she was alive and check for a pulse, but let go of her when he realized she was dead and walked back to his residence. He says he took a shower, put all of his bloody clothes into a plastic bag, and tossed them onto his roof. It is seemingly suspicious that Clemente doesn't call 911 to report a double murder. And when one knows that he also showers away all the evidence and then hides the bloody clothes, it's not difficult to understand why Clemente was law enforcement's prime suspect. His actions certainly seem like the first steps in covering up any involvement in the crime, And investigators might also be skeptical of his story that he was still drinking at 6 a.m. and that he would let himself in to his neighbor's house at the crack of dawn to ask for more beer. Clemente's actions and his explanation for entering the crime scene raise red flags with the SCSO. But Clemente, it turns out, has another explanation. He's an illegal immigrant who claims he didn't call the cops because he was afraid of being deported. He didn't want police to know not only wasn't he a legal citizen, but that he had entered a horrific crime scene. At 8.55 p.m. on the evening of the murders, Special Agent Hidalgo and another officer sit down for a lengthy interview with Clemente. Clemente denies killing anyone and rejects their repeated attempts to persuade him to confess. They rule out the possibility that he did this while drunk and doesn't remember it. Clemente sticks to his previous story telling them he was at Pretzels on the night of June 16th, and Agent Hidalgo admits that Hemmert corroborated what Clemente had previously told Hemmert. They caught that guy that you had problems with and took him, Hidalgo tells Clemente, referring to the man with whom he had had an altercation at the bar. It's true. It's true because a police report exists. Despite this evidence of his whereabouts, Agent Hidalgo continues to press Clemente to admit that he had killed Cheryl and Carol, claiming this was the only way he could help his, quote-unquote, Latin brother. In fact, detectives made multiple comments to Clemente throughout the interrogation, including, but not limited to, the following. Hey, you are lying to me, because there are reasons when one doesn't want to say 100% this is what happened. Unfortunately, I'm not believing you 100%. And I tell you, look, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm telling you based on everything I have learned in this investigation and based in what I have lived, I, I want to help you. But the only way I can tell the judge, Mr. Clemente was an honorable man, 
He said, I made a mistake and this is what happened. There are a lot of problems you're going to have to explain, a lot of things, and you are not explaining them. These scratches on your back and arms, the, the, the way you entered the house, the lifting of the body, you left all your signs there. And unfortunately, they are not helping you. That's why I tell you, in this country, there are evidences they could put in lenses like this type. Clemente understands where Hidalgo is coming from, but tells Hidalgo, I'm telling you the truth, brother. I found their bodies this morning. He is also on record saying, you know, but brother, I did not do anything. I have a clear conscience, and all I can say is what I said to the other deputy. This might also give a little insight into Hidalgo's theory. It turns out he thinks Clemente's motive was that Cheryl had refused to have sex with him, which he tells Clemente. Clemente explains that he had no desire to have sexual relations with Cheryl and notes her age as a reason. Remember, Clemente admits to being in the house, already a crime scene, at sunrise, and also that he made physical contact with Cheryl's body. He claimed he was attempting to resuscitate her, and that is why her blood was found on his clothes. So Clemente directs the police to the location where he hid the bloody clothes, and also consents to photographs being taken of his body, gives buccal swabs and fingernail scrapings. He also consents to the seizure of his Reebok sneakers. Was all of this done in good faith and to help prove his innocence? Or was this a fabricated story meant to explain why his footprints or DNA might be found at the scene of the crime? At the conclusion of this interview, investigator Hemmert arrests Clemente for evidence tampering and destruction, and he is transported to jail. After Clemente's arrest, Jacqueline Grossi executes a search warrant for Clemente's residence and any cars on the premises. They revisit the knife that was discovered between the crime scene and Clemente's house. Police learn that Clemente and his roommate, Guillermo Espinoza, work as dishwashers and food preppers at Luigino's Pasta and Steak Restaurant. So Sergeant Negri and Investigator Bean go there on June 18th. They are informed that a set of Cisco knives had been purchased for use by the restaurant's staff. The knife discovered between the crime scene and their home had a 10-inch blade, a white handle, and the word Cisco written in blue on it. Guillermo had borrowed a similar Cisco chef's knife about six or seven months prior, and it was now missing from the set. Investigator Bean confirms with Feliciano and Guillermo that the knife that resembled the murder weapon was stored in their kitchen. They both try to find it, but are unsuccessful, so the knife is determined to be missing. They now have another reason to suspect Clemente was involved. Dr. Thomas Beaver of the Volusia County Medical Examiner's Office performs autopsies on Cheryl and Carol the same day. As we discussed in the previous episode, Cheryl has 129 stab wounds on her body, including her left arm, legs, both her right and left hands, her back, and the top half of her buttocks. At the crime scene, her pants were pulled down, exposing the top half of her buttocks, and she was killed by multiple sharp force wounds to the chest. Carol, Cheryl's mother, suffered two sharp force wounds to her body, with the fatal blow landing directly in her chest. Dr. Beaver officially determines that Cheryl and Carol died as a result of homicide. Over the first four days following the murder, 
several people are interviewed and are asked if they had seen Clemente the night before or morning of the murders. The first was Salvador Prado Cisneros, a friend of Clemente's. He confirms that he and Clemente had been at Pretzel's until about 2 a.m. and then went to his residence on Alma Drive. Pretzel's is now closed, but it was a five-minute drive or about a 24-minute walk to Salvador's residence. So it was unlikely that they had walked 24 minutes to get there, but possible. Salvador estimates that Clemente left his residence between 3 and 4 a.m. that morning. Salvador's house at 149 Alma Drive is a seven-minute walk to Clemente's house. We aren't sure how Clemente got home, but this still leaves two hours of unaccounted time until he says he finds the bodies at 6 a.m., based on Salvador's recollection. The second person they interview is Guillermo Espinoza, again, one of Clemente's roommates. He confirms that on June 16th at about 7 p.m., he saw Clemente, who was on his way out to the bar to play pool and had been picked up by a friend. The third person is David Shute. During this interview, David tells Hemmert that he had been at Pretzel's on the night of June 16th, 2004, with his stepfather, Robert Torres, and a friend, Charles Brown. He says he saw Clemente there until about 3 a.m., when he left and went to a house on Alma Avenue, and again saw Clemente there. Salvador claims that he and Clemente left Pretzel's at 2 a.m., so an hour earlier than David states, but Salvador does live on Alma Avenue, which is where David claims he saw Clemente after the bar. The fourth person interviewed is Robert Torres. Robert tells Hemmert he had picked up his stepson, David Shoup, and their friend Charles Brown from Pretzel's early on the morning of June 17th. They were with two Latin guys, apparently referring to Clemente and Salvador, who were pretty drunk. He reports that the really short guy, assuming he was referring to the 411 Clemente, had gotten into a fight at the bar earlier that night. He left Pretzel's with David, Charles, and the two Latin guys around 2 a.m. and went to a trailer on Alma with them. This information further confirmed that Clemente had been at Pretzel's until at least 2 a.m., and then had gone to Salvador's trailer on Alma. The fifth person is Charles Brown, friend of David Shoup. Charles confirms what David and Robert have told Hemmert. He had seen Clemente at Pretzel's when he arrived there around 1 a.m. on June 17th, and he had left with him and three other people to travel to a residence on Alma shortly after 2 a.m. So five people have claimed to see Clemente throughout the night but since they are all friends with him, or at least acquaintances, it could be speculated that they are all covering for him. The first person wasn't interviewed until 14 hours after they had first interviewed Clemente, giving them plenty of time to potentially communicate a plan and determine what they would say to detectives. Interestingly, not one investigator goes to pretzels to interview bartenders or the manager to confirm if they, too, had either seen Clemente confirmed if he had signed a receipt for his drinks or used a credit card, or if they had security camera footage that would or wouldn't identify him. However, based on these interviews, it puts Clemente at Pretzel's from a little after 7 p.m. until after 2 a.m., and at Salvador's house until 3 or 4 a.m. This information indicates that Clemente could not have killed Cheryl between 11 p.m. and 1 a.m., which was the window indicated by the degree of rigor mortis. But is it possible that the timing of rigor mortis had been miscalculated? June 22nd to June 24th, 2004. On the fifth and sixth day after the murders, 
While other members of the police force work to corroborate Clemente's alibi, investigator Grossi completes the crime scene investigation by collecting various swabs and other types of trace evidence. On June 24th, seven days after the bodies were discovered, the crime scene is finally cleared. Investigator Grossi discovers a credit card and money on the dresser in the southwest bedroom, as well as prescriptions throughout the house, indicating that this was not a failed burglary. The same day, crime scene analyst Christine Craig determines that the footwear impressions in suspected blood from the crime scene are similar in tread design and size to the black Reebok shoes collected from Clemente. This is consistent with Clemente having found both bodies on the morning of June 17th. One thing that was not found in our research was Mark's shoe size. He wasn't wearing any shoes when the police arrived after his 911 call to report the scene, but what if he had been wearing shoes? Mark's shoe size and shoes are unaccounted for. That same day, fingerprint analyst Donna Burks completes a latent fingerprint report on the handle of the knife which was the apparent murder weapon. The report claims that there was a positive identification with the left palm of Clemente Aguirre. Evidence is stacking up against Clemente. On June 25th, based on Burke's palm print identification as the physical evidence, Clemente is indicted on two counts of premeditated first-degree murder and burglary, carrying a potential death penalty. If you're curious how law enforcement determines that a murder is premeditated, Killing by premeditated design is defined as killing after fully forming a conscious purpose to take human life. The decision must be present in the mind before and during the act. The law does not fix an exact amount of time that must pass before the premeditated intent to kill and the actual killing, but the period of time must be long enough to allow for reflection and deliberation by the defendant. Clemente was indicted on charges of premeditated murder, because he armed himself with a knife prior to entering the residence, and was there ample time for reflection sometime before the first and 129th stab into Cheryl's body, and then later with Carol. Filling in the image of premeditation, Clemente's past transgressions of entering the women's home uninvited, as well as allegedly standing over Samantha while she slept. Next time on Secrets, Lies, and Alibis. Clemente's future hangs in the balance as he arrives at his trial. More evidence comes to the forefront, and the American justice system is put to the test. Secrets come to light, lies stack up, and alibis are tested. See you next time.